When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello. Howdy. So here we are, our special Valentine's Week edition of Reasons to be Cheerful. Do you get many Valentine's cards from your constituents? Or from admirers in general? Yeah, yeah, any of these, yeah. I'm hard pushed to remember. Not even from that person who has a tattoo of your face on their inner thigh? That's pretty outrageous, you'd have thought, actually. Have you heard from that person in the last couple of years? No, I think you seem overly interested in this. Well, it's, an inter- a, <laughs> it, <laughs> it's inherently interesting that gate. somebody is walking around with, a, with your face on their well, inner thigh. Well, you sound almost surprised. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm just wondering if there's been any laser removal, if maybe it was a decision made in haste. You could be actually. Well, get in touch if you are that person. If it's if it's still there, yeah. If not, then perhaps we don't want to know. Yeah. All right. Then why don't we talk about what the special romantic theme of this week's episode is? Then taxing the rich. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that quite counts. <laughs> so taxing the rich then. Um, a Valentine's Day special. No, I think this is a really interesting episode because. It it really stems from the debate that is now taking place in America. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, who I've talked about on this podcast before, who's a 28-year-old congresswoman, youngest congresswoman I think ever elected, um, has sort of proposed a number of things that have got people talking, including a 70% tax rate on the richest, uh, marginal tax rate above $10 million. Um, so it's not average tax rate, but on that, on the, that bit of income above $10 million. Um, Elizabeth Warren running for president has proposed a big wealth tax on people above $50 million at 2% and 3% above $1 billion. Um, and I thought it'd be just useful to talk about sort of implications of this. What does it mean? Uh, what are the responsibilities of the most wealthy in our society? Because I think that, you know, we're, we're consumed by Brexit, but I think that American debate is really raging. And, you know, politics in America, at least in the Democratic Party, is obviously moving to the left. But we just need to sort of talk about the issues. And what's really interesting about the US debate is that the polling on it, when Ocasio-Cortez and Warren proposed their things, people said, oh, that might be political suicide. But actually, Warren's plan uh, in a poll conducted just uh, at the beginning of this month has the support of 61% of all voters and 50% of Republicans. So 50% of Republicans support it and 30% oppose it. And Ocasio-Cortez's plan has a bit less support, 45% of all voters. But even that is favoured by 31% of Republicans with 49% opposing it. So the the debate is definitely changing. And we've got two great guests, Nick Hanauer, who is somebody I met first after 2015. He is self-described a member of the top Point naught one percent of the population, so he's sort of like a billionaire. Has he got a yacht? Do you think he might invite us to do a special edition of the Possibly podcast on a yacht? Reasons to be yachting, uh, and and he is very 
supportive of these efforts to tax the rich. And then Rutger Bregman, who's a Dutch historian who who kind of went viral because he went to Davos where the elites gather. Have you ever been to Davos gathering with the elites? Yes, I have. And I fell over as I got out of the car. <laughs> of course you, of course the, you did. Of on the ice, did. got a terrible bruise. And that is the And I've never been back. And does any video footage exist of this? Thankfully not. That's but a great but you could, shame. It was incredibly cold and I fell over and there were lots of sort of kind of people who didn't really want to talk to me. <laughs> I think what's important about this is not about being envious of the richest. It's asking what role do the richest in our society have? I often thought when I was in government that people talked a lot about the social exclusion. This was a term used about poorer people. I think we should talk about the social exclusion of the rich as well and what their responsibilities are. So that's really our topic. And uh, we're going to hear some ideas from comedian Rosie Jones. She's going to try and give us some potential reasons to be cheerful. What's yours? I went to see a production of Stephen Sondheim's Company this week, which I enjoyed. It was good, but I mean, the great thing about it is one of the legends of Broadway is in it, Patti Lupone. And I've never, you know, had the privilege of seeing her on a stage before, and it was worth the price of the ticket just to see her. Wow. Justine and I are going on Monday. Oh, well, you can report back next week then. I will. Yeah. Uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is also American. I believe company is American. Mm hmm. Uh, which is that the New England Patriots, the American football team I support, won their sixth Super Bowl a week ago. Congratulations, they couldn't have done it without you. Well, I think they could have done, but um, there's many reasons why, in my position, it's hard to support the New England Patriots. Tom Brady, their quarterback, had a MAGA, Make America Great Again, hat in his locker. Donald Trump read out a letter, I think, from Bill Belichick, the coach. But I supported them from when i was a kid they were between mediocre and useless for my whole life and then they are now the most successful american football team in history i mean even for somebody who doesn't understand american football and thinks it's a brutal violent game which it is and it's got many problems you know tom brady has appeared in more super bowls than as an individual than any other team has played in super bowls wow yeah i mean you can tell that's a big deal yeah you um, love a fact, don't you? I do love it. I love a nerdy fact. He's played in 17% of total Super Bowls ever played. That's another nerdy fact. Any more nerdy facts for uh, us? No, that's really it on the old... But but there is something sort of sociologically interesting about him, which is his incredible coolness under pressure. I've never seen an athlete who is so cool under pressure uh, and also sort of determination to win. Just a shame about his hat. Just a shame about his hat. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So I'm delighted to say that we're now joined from Seattle by Nick Hanauer. Uh, he self-describes himself as a member of the top 0.01% of the population. He has a new podcast called Pitchfork Economics, and he is really importantly a, a, a very vocal civic and political activist in the US. Nick, thanks so much for joining us. Super happy to be with you. Um, so look, let's just start with your story, because I think it's sort of unusual the way you talk about it among the kind of richer part of the population. You say, as I said in the intro, that you're part of the 0.01%. Tell us about your story about how you made your money and what lessons you draw from it. My family fled the Nazis in the late 20s, early 30s and came to the United States uh, but fortunately, they were a moderately prosperous business family, and my great uncle and my grandfather bought a small company out of bankruptcy. You know, the kind of company they had uh, back in Germany, which made 
home furnishings, bed pillows and down comforters. And I was lucky enough to grow up in that very, very small business when I was young and um, went to college and got out and went back to work for the family business. And my brother and I, uh, along with my dad and a bunch of other executives, made, you know, made the company um, quite successful. I mean, uh, we sold it last year, but it, at its peak, it was uh, almost a $300 million U.S. company. But, but what, my, what my lucky break really was, was I had a very, for a number of reasons, very early interest in the Internet. I had a couple of friends who also shared that interest, both named Jeff. One was named Jeff Tauber, who wanted to start an online department store. The other was named Jeff Bezos, who wanted to start an online bookstore. And I offered to finance both of those uh, people, and Jeff Bezos took my money first and ended up moving from New York, where he lived, uh, to Seattle. He sent his stuff across the country to my house, and I became sort of his first investor and sort of first helper and I served as a board advisor to Amazon for the first five years of its existence and you know I don't need to tell you that I made a a ton of money on that investment it's good to have a friend called Jeff that's what I think yeah exactly exactly very 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 fortunate you're not still interested in funding people called Jeff just as a matter of interest (laughs) (laughs) no no, I've moved on from that damn Uh, but I ended up founding with some other guys, uh, a company called the Quantive uh, that became a very large company that we sold to Microsoft for six and a half billion dollars in 2007. You know, I've now helped start over three dozen companies across a you know a very broad range of industries, and you know have had a lot of good fortune in that career. So, so that is kind of an amazing story. But I think what's maybe even more remarkable about you is you don't have the conventional position if i can put it that way of people in your income bracket i suppose that's true in a bunch of ways i think the first my career and success makes quite clear that the usual sort of rags to riches story that people tell themselves about their success is more nuanced than that that you know i obviously I mean, I, I mean, to be clear, I did not grow up rich. My family was, you know, I, I was born, my parents were kind of hippies. And I was born in Greenwich Village in New York, and they were poor. And then we moved back to Seattle. And when my dad went to work for the family business, it was quite small. And I grew up in a very middle class life. You know, I went to public schools, and we lived in a small, normal house when I grew up. But, you know, I, I started with early advantages, uh, you know, being surrounded by a supportive network. And, you know, my dad was a very good tr- teacher <laughs> about business, and I was surrounded by people who could mentor me there. And, you know, I had a series of very, very lucky breaks. Now, you know, I, I mean, th- don't get me wrong. I think of myself as being very clever and very hardworking. Uh, but, th- but you know, I was definitely in the right place at the right time. Uh, you know, a bunch of times. I think – it's really important to acknowledge the role of f- first, you know, path dependence. The fact that you, I was, I started out in a pretty good position. I definitely was not born to a broken family in a slum somewhere. And also, I just was lucky. I, I just was, you know, I just knew the right people and got lucky. And and here I am. And as a consequence of that, I really feel strongly that that the insane amounts of inequality in our society are not a perfect reflection of merit or what people deserve, that 
that in many, if not most cases, the enormously wealthy people in most societies are there because they got fortunate or they started out in the right place or they inherited it or whatever it is. But I do know enough about human psychology uh, to know that everybody has to be the hero of their own story. And people need to believe that their circumstances are deserved. And a lot of what passes for the revealed natural order in economic, certainly in economic theory, really is a story that economic elites use to justify our relative position, right? It's, it's, it's a way to rationalize who gets what and why. And, you know, people – look, if you make a ton of money in a world where lots and lots and lots of people are really, really struggling to get by – it's super hard not to try to make up a story in your head about why you deserve it and they don't. The theory of rational expectations, efficient market theory in economics is uh, remarkably um, – if you're somebody like me, that, that's a remarkably easy thing to get to believe because if markets are perfectly efficient, then the rich deserve to be rich and the poor deserve to be poor. You've written recently that going – I think hard left, actually, the headline said, is the new centre. We've been watching the debate being unleashed by Alexandra Casio-Cortez and her 70% marginal tax rate for people earning over $10 million and Elizabeth Warren's proposals on the wealth tax. Yes. Tell us about how those kinds of proposals fit into your analysis. We've done a bunch of thinking around what it means to be centrist with respect to political economy and the difference between objective centrism and ideological centrism. And what seems super obvious is what center-left folks have believed for a generation is that being moderate or being centrist, it means some version of a vicious, exploitive, trickle-down agenda of tax cuts for the rich, deregulation for the powerful, wage suppression with it, for everyone else, but without the overt racism. And that is where moderate Democrats have been. Like that's the policy agenda they have represented. And indeed, if you put – if you were to take the entire population of the United States and sort of stack them on a meter yardstick from poorest to richest, you would find the fulcrum right in the middle, right at half a meter or 18 inches. But if you were to try to find the fulcrum based on wealth shares – where 50% was on one side and 50% was on another, about uh, a centimeter and a half from the right. That's where the fulcrum is. And that's where moderates and centrists have found uh, the balance point, is balancing the economic interests of the insanely rich, uh, the top 1%, against the economic interests of everyone else. And so things like raising the minimum wage materially, they think of as being radical left. But nothing could be farther from the truth. When you, when you enact economic policies that benefit the broad majority of citizens, the people in the middle deciles or even in the uh, you know, upper two-thirds deciles, that's not radical lefty. That's true centrism. And, and this, this so-called moderation of just making rich people richer – and throwing the occasional bone to poor people has nothing to do with moderation or centrism. It's simply a kinder and gentler neoliberalism, a way 
to maintain the status quo and keep rich people getting richer and everybody else getting poorer. And so these super popular ideas like a 70% marginal tax rate on incomes above $10 million or a tax on wealth above $50 million or whatever it is to fund all the things that actually sustain the economy and the middle class, those are truly centrist. They benefit the broad majority of people and they're wildly popular. And so what I've been arguing is that Elizabeth Warren is the true centrist. Uh, the, this this dynamic new uh, congresswoman we have who we all call a- AOC now, she is the true centrist. And my fellow jillionaire Howard Schultz uh, from Seattle, the guy Starbucks. who runs Starbucks, who has just Mr. yeah, who has just announced his his uh, his intention to run for president on one of these vicious trickle down uh, policy agendas. He's not a centrist. He's he's just an old fashioned neoliberal, but not a nativist and a racist, which is what we find in the Republican Party today. Now, now let me ask you some questions, which I think our listeners will will like to hear your answers to, particularly because you're a relatively wealthy person, and these are some of the traditional yeah. objections that people would make to some of the proposals that we've heard from AOC and from Elizabeth Warren. The first is, isn't it unfair that? You're losing seven dollars out of every ten dollars you earn, isn't you know? Isn't that just like you know? Don't you deserve to keep a bit more of that? People, some people might say it's just it's just it's just kind of way out of whack in terms of the amount that you're having to give up. Yeah. Okay. So to be clear, you wouldn't have to give up any of that money until you hit ten million dollars in income. <laughs> yeah. So, so I can tell you definitively that ten million dollars of annual income will allow you to live a pretty good life. (laughs) (laughs) You can say that from personal experience, I guess. I can. And not getting to keep uh, the majority of the $100 million you earn uh, every year may be seen by some as unfair. But you know what's even more unfair is to be born into a family that can't afford to feed you or house you. That's that's also super unfair. And I could list a litany of other things that are more egregiously unfair than an enormously wealthy person having to give up a majority of their income uh, to support – to help support the rest of society. But the bigger objection that people usually make about those tax rates is that it will kill economic growth for everyone. You anticipated my next question. This is the oldest trick in the – in the um, wage suppression handbook, which is, uh, oh, I would happily pay that tax rate, but it would be bad for you. <laughs> it would that these that these policies will actually harm the very people they're intended to help, which is the oldest, uh, really the the oldest form of oppression. You know, there's this super super successful modality of oppression, which is no 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 no. It's the problem with this policy is it's actually bad for you. And the truth is that there is no empirical evidence that high marginal tax rates kill growth in in any dimension, not GDP growth, not per capita GDP growth, not productivity growth, not real median wage growth, nothing. In the United States, we have a ton of data around this. You can go back to the 30s or 40s and, and, and see what's happened with respect to all these um, these growth numbers relative to marginal tax rates. And in fact, 
for the United States, the highest rates of growth came when the marginal tax rates were the highest, 70 to 90%. And that's because low, low tax rates for rich people grow only one thing, which is, the, which is the bank accounts of rich people. It doesn't help the other parts of the economy at all. Do you think it would lead rich people to pay themselves a bit less? I do. I do. So, so uh, you know, I have some personal experience with this, um, which is that, you know, I grew up in this family business w- it, during a time when marginal tax rates were very, very high, uh, both on corporations and individually, dividend tax rates and so on and so forth. And, and my dad was a very clever guy, and he invented this uh, extremely effective tax avoidance scheme. And he called it investing back in the business. (laughs) That's that's what we did. The company never made profit because any free cash flow, we simply invested in people or in new plants and equipment or in inventory. So the high tax rates created enormous incentives for people to keep personal income low and investments in the very, very high as a way to lower your tax burden. And that turned out to be incredibly good for the economy. These low tax rates on dividends and corporate tax rates, that people think that that is going to spur investment. It's actually the opposite of true. The higher the tax rate is, the more incentive there is for people to make investments in companies and people. Next one, will it lead everyone to take their money out and go and live in Bermuda or, you know, some tax haven? Flight, the, the flight of capital argument. Yeah, you know, for sure, in the same way that a national economy is a collective action problem and you want to solve the problems across the economy in a nation, uh, the world is also a collective action problem. And, and, and uh, you know, I don't need to tell you that when a country enables a company like Apple to operate out of it and not pay any taxes, that form of cheating is – is a difficult problem, and, and, and the world has to come to terms with that. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I say if you want to go live in Bermuda, good riddance, because when you leave, that creates room for other people. And you know, there will always be people who are so sociopathic that they will take their marbles and go away. But you know, our country, your country, is filled with capable people. It's not like uh, if Jeff Bezos left the United States, the whole thing would come tumbling down. Like, fine, go. <laughs> go live in Bermuda. <laughs> you know, Someone else will do something interesting in your stead. Jeff Lloyd will replace him. Yeah, happ- happily. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happily to be a standard Jeff. I'm trying to think of some of the other arguments that we need to go through that people would make. Uh, one of them would be that the, the, the rich or the high earners already pay a lot in tax, a big sort of piece of the pie is already paid by high earners. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is true that rich people already pay a, a big proportion of the taxes, but that's an artifact of economic inequality. In a society where the only people who have any money are rich people, yeah, of course they're going to pay a huge proportion of the taxes. But in an economy where everybody is more prosperous, then you can spread the tax burden much more effectively and, and broadly. So, you know, it, how can you ask a family 
that can barely put food on the table and pay the rent to pay a lot in taxes. You obviously can't. But the, the, the reason they can't afford to pay taxes is because their wages have been suppressed for 40 years. So, so for perspective, if the, the median family in the United States earns $59,000 per year today, if, if the United States was, had the same amount of economic inequality today as it had in 1980, that same family would earn 86000 it, It's pretty obvious that if, that if the median family in America earned $86,000 today, then people like me would earn a little bit less, but they would, of course, pay a lot more in tax. So the, this is a feedback loop, right? And, and so to, for rich people to take all of the income from working in middle class people and then complain about the fact that they have to pay all the taxes is just the most egregious bullshit, right? Like, like this is just nonsense. You can't have it both ways. If you want all the money, you got to pay all the taxes. And and what about the argument that the number of people earning the type of money that you're you're talking about is so small, the amount of tax revenue in the grand scheme of things that would be brought in would be fa- fairly negligible, and it would just be a, a kind of an ideological policy more than it would be a revenue raising one. Yeah. So, the, so so the argument that you wouldn't uh, raise a lot of revenue is just. It's just objectively false. I mean, the United States, it, I, I cannot speak for England. I don't know the, the landscape. But there are a lot of people who earn a lot of money in the United States. Tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of year, uh, a year. The, that money, uh, you know, the, the, the top 1% of earners in the United States earns something like $2.5 trillion per year. Uh, taxing that income uh, at higher rates would certainly raise enough money to, among other things, for instance, make college affordable for every citizen. So the idea that there's no money there is just that's just that's just a red herring. The question you pose about ideology, it, it, it I think, is a really profound one uh, because th- there are huge social costs to building an economy where a few people have infinite, essentially infinite amounts of wealth uh, and where most people uh, don't. That arrangement is super corrosive to the the society in general because concentrated wealth turns into concentrated power. And that's the really bad part. That's the really bad part is – you know, creating a giant distance between an elite few and the rest is bad for societies. And I think that, you know, if you look back at history, that there is no example in which that arrangement was good or sustainable. And so I think that there's great social utility in actively trying to manage the top, you know, how much wealth is accumulated at the top. There is no social utility in letting somebody become become worth a hundred billion dollars. No one wins except that person. Everybody else is losing at that point, and that and that makes no sense to me.
We have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which will obviously appeal to you given your early investment in Jeffs. Uh, and this is a sort of scenario where Jeff is the benign dictator ruler of the country. If Jeff was to appoint you, I guess if we'd call it Chancellor of the Exchequer, so Minister for sort of Taxation and Finance, um, finance uh, Treasury Secretary, I think in your terms, here, and I accept you say you don't know the huge detail yeah. about the UK tax system, what what's the sort of first thing that you would want to do or want to investigate or or argument you would want to make well at least in our country and probably in yours the first thing you have to acknowledge is that the real money is in wages it's not in taxes and and if you want to generate broad prosperity and faster rates of economic growth what you have to do is raise wages across the board and so imposing wage standards on companies that require them to pay people enough to lead uh, dignified, uh, secure, and stable lives would be job one. So I'm a huge believer in capitalism, but I believe it is just dishonest to both believe in capitalism and also believe that the whole system will come tumbling down if capitalists are required to pay people enough to live to get by without you know, government assistance. That's, that's nonsense. That, that capitalism is either a good system or it's not. If it's a good system, it's robust to high standards. And so it, that there should be no circumstance, particularly when somebody works for a big company, where they cannot, uh, you know, where their income from that uh, job doesn't support their family and, and allow them to live a stable and secure life. And that arrangement will spur economic growth in all sorts of ways, uh, obviously, uh, the more money people have, the more money they spend, the more they spend, uh, the more people have to make. And that dynamic is very, very uh, – th- that's the main driver of market economies. But also, when people are feeling stable and secure, uh, they can afford to uh, invest in themselves. They become more productive. You end up with a much more high-functioning and civil uh, society. Uh, so, so that's job one. And the other thing is just to – close all the loopholes that let big corporations and rich people not pay their fair share. And again, I do not understand the arrangements that you have in Great Britain, but uh, certainly in the United States, rich people get off super, super cheap here because, I mean, you have to remember that we have a 39% tax rate on ordinary income, but the capital gains tax rate is like 20%. So, so, and that's where all the money is, right? When you sell things that, and, and so, my tax rates are much, much lower than, uh, you know, the tax rates of somebody who just earns a salary. And so all those loopholes need to get closed. Uh, and, you know, you want to you aim your economic policies, not, by the way, not just at poor people who are really, really struggling, but at the bottom eight or nine deciles of, excuse me, of folks who make the economy go. You've got the job. I'm interested in doing a future episode on the issues that affect people who own giant yachts. And I was wondering if we could spend, <laughs> come and spend some time on your yacht, maybe just a couple of weeks off, off Cape yeah. Cod. Um, I mean, yeah. does, does that sound like something you'd be able to make happen? Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Bring the recording equipment. Nick Hanath, thank you so much for joining us. Okay. Fun to be with you. Thank you. This is my first time at Davos, and I find it quite a bewildering experience, to be honest. I mean, 1,500 private jets have flown in here to hear Sir David Attenborough speak about, you know, how we're wrecking the planet. And, uh, I mean, I hear people talk in the language of participation and justice and equality and transparency. 
But then, I mean, almost no one raises the real issue of tax avoidance, right? And of the rich just not paying their fair share. I mean, it feels like I'm at a firefighters fighters conference and no one's allowed to speak about water. I mean, this is not rocket science. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can talk for a very long time about all these stupid <laughs> philanthropy schemes. We can invite Bono once more. But come on, it's, we got to be talking about taxes. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Taxes, taxes, taxes. All the rest is bullshit, in, in my opinion. Well, I'm delighted to say that we are now joined by Rutger Bregman, who you heard in that oh. clip, uh, from Amsterdam. Rutger, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I think lots of people have now seen your clip from Davos, and we just heard it. What what led uh-huh. you to speak out in the way that you did? Oh, well, you know, I was actually invited to Davos to talk about my book, Utopia for Realists, which is a book about, you know, all kinds of bizarre ideas, utopian ideas like basic income, uh, a shorter working week, open borders around the globe, those kind of things. Because I, you know, my argument in the, in the book is that is that every milestone of civilization was once a utopian fantasy. So we need these kind of crazy ideas. And basic income, as you may know, has become a quite popular idea in tech circles in Silicon Valley. And some of these CEOs and billionaires there are interested in in it as well. So uh, that got me to Davos. And I was there. You know, every day I got more uncomfortable because I was allowed to talk about anything, you know, about education, about climate change, about basic income, as long as I didn't mention the T word, taxes. So I was in a private panel on Tuesday, you know, a panel that's not accessible to journalists. And then I was like, okay, we need a substantial basic income, but, you know, you need actually need higher taxes to pay for that first, especially in places like the US and the UK, where inequality has grown a lot in the past couple of decades. Um, And uh, the response from the audience was so aggressive that on Wednesday or th- or, or Thursday, I um, I decided to uh, let rip. Sort of, yeah. I changed my plan, so I went to my hotel room on Thursday and I prepared a short speech about taxes and uh, memorized it by heart. And then uh, on that Friday, I was very nervous. <laughs> I didn't sleep much, to be honest. And uh, I, then the moderator asked me a question about basic income and about poverty. And I just completely ignored the question and gave the speech. So that's how it happened. And of course, it went viral and people have been loving watching the video of it. What was it like in Davos afterwards? Could anybody make eye contact with you? I mean, how, how did these rich people react? <laughs> it was very, very uncomfortable. <laughs> so, uh, I had a very bad feeling about it, actually, just after after the panel had ended. You know, people weren't very enthusiastic. So after two minutes, I was standing there alone. and was like, OK, you know what? I'm going to catch a train and go home. And nothing much happened. You know, a couple of my friends said, oh, that, that was good. You know, uh, <laughs> bet you won't be invited again to, to Davos. It was only on Monday that an American website, you know, they, I don't know, they saw the video or something and they they made it into this viral thing and it completely exploded. Indeed. Now, your case for higher taxes on the rich is partly based on your work as a historian, which you talk about, Mm -hmm. which you talked about in that session. Do you want to just say for the benefit of our listeners something about your, your argument in relation to that? Well, historians all agree that we have this golden age of capitalism, right, in the 50s and the 60s. And this was also a period in which there was way lower inequality than we have now, and when we had much higher tax rates on the rich. So we had a top marginal tax rates, income tax rates of over 90% in places like the US and the UK. In many countries, we had wealth taxes, we had much higher inheritance taxes. 
And this was also a period in which the, the working classes and the middle classes really saw a lot of progress in their lives. When we had a lot of technological innovation, when we put a man on the moon, it was, as, as I said, the golden age of capitalism. It's only around you know, the end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s that things really started to change. And it, since then, we've also seen the pace of innovation slow quite a bit. So uh, I'm making a very simple point, uh, and that's also what I did in Davos, is let's just go back to you know those sensible policies we had back then. If you look at the average marginal tax rate for top incomes between 1930 and the 1970s in the U.S., on average, it was 82 percent, 82 percent, right? And 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 the economy was just fine during most of that period. So uh, what we see now is that there is a new generation that is not traumatized by the Cold War and that didn't grow up in the era of Reagan and Thatcher, but that has been radicalized by the financial crisis and that is open to new ideas or old ideas that are being rebranded as new ideas, I should say, as an historian. And part of what you were saying, I think, at Davos was not just the case for high taxes, higher taxes on the rich, but also, never mind this philanthropy, uh, you know, Gates, Buffett and all that, Actually, yeah. tax is the right way to go rather than thinking that philanthropy is the answer. Just say a bit more about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I like the work Bill Gates has been doing. Sure. Uh, but Bill Gates really is a is the exception. Uh, the rule is that most billionaires you know, give a very, very small amount of their wealth to charities. And um, often they use these charities as a way to distract from their corrupt business models. So they come up with the, all these... Uh, financial products that only destroy wealth. Um, they don't pay their workers a living wage, etc., etc. Um, it's it's really charity becomes a tool to distract people from the exploitation that is going on. So that's why I said stop talking about philanthropy and start talking about taxes. And what about the flight of people internationally? Because you're of course right to say that in that period, uh, the so-called golden age of capitalism top rates of tax were mm-hmm. much, much higher, in the, certainly in the UK, in the US and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Of course, the counter argument from some people will be, ah, but we were much less connected as a, as a world. And it was much harder for people to either put their money abroad or put themselves abroad and move away. What, mm-hmm. what, what, how do you react to that argument? Well, I've never been very impressed by that argument, to be honest. I mean, financial globalization was not inevitable. You know, it was a political choice. And all these tax paradises around the globe, you know, Bermuda or the Cayman Islands or the Netherlands, you know, where I'm from, these are not the most powerful countries in the world. You know, it would be relatively easy if the US and the European Union together would say, okay, stop it already. You know, we don't want these tax paradises anymore. We're going to crack down on you. It will be over very soon. This is exactly what happened with the bank secrecy in Switzerland. Uh, when, as soon as the FBI said, okay, we don't want it anymore, it was gone. Um, it's not a matter of whether this is possible, yes or no. It's really a matter of political will. Um, so the, 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 I think the most important takeaway here is that what w- the debate we're having right now around Texas is not about left versus right. It's really about plutocracy versus democracy. The vast majority of people, uh, even on the right, even Republicans in the U.S., uh, according to you know polls that go back to the 90s, all want higher taxes on the rich, find, to finally start paying their fair share. 
Um, it's just that the, the rich have, have managed to capture uh, our, our, our democracies and, and, uh, and corrupt it in many ways. But now there's a new generation that is not buying that anymore. So I'm, I'm quite hopeful for the future, actually. And are we talking about taxing income? Are we talking about taxing wealth? Are we talking about co- taxing corporations or, or just talking mm-hmm. about the rich in, in general? Well, all these taxes are very dear to me. <laughs> um, uh, what I think we should do in general is to tax those things that we want less of, right? So we want less rent-seeking. We want less laziness. We want less, you know, all these kind of rich classes who inherited all their wealth and don't produce anything of value themselves, right? We want less of these externalities of pollution, et cetera, et cetera. We want less of these corrupt business models. So that those are all the things we should tax. And how high would you go and how would you justify it? How high would you go with marginal rates? Okay, so the latest rigorous empirical evidence says that a top marginal tax rate of 70% is, is the best rate if you want to maximize revenue. I think that is also a reasonable uh, level, you know, really for the highest incomes, right? So you only start paying it over, you know, like, a, say, a million dollar or something, like a million pound or whatever. Uh, we, you can discuss that. I mean, it's not the same as an average tax rate. It's sure. really important to, to emphasize sure. that. Then uh, a wealth tax of around 2 3%, as Elizabeth Warren has recently been uh, proposed, would be a very good idea. We have a thing on the podcast, which is called the Jeffocracy, where I, Jeff, um, uh, appointed supreme leader, but I'm, I'm very much into delegation. If I made you minister for tax reform, what is the first <laughs> thing you would do on day one? What, what's your first idea that you're going to come to have me sign off on? <laughs> Oh, that is <laughs> that is a great question. Okay, so the first thing we have to do really is uh, to implement, I think, a proper wealth tax because that's the main issue. I mean, uh, income inequality has grown a lot in the past couple of decades, but wealth inequality has grown even more than that, and it is threatening our democracies. Um, so that would be the first thing. And then the second thing would probably be to be to crack down on a on a tax paradise like Holland, <laughs> you know. As as I said, I'm I'm from Holland, and one of the things that frustrates me immensely is that people abroad never know that you know their companies in their countries are using Holland as a major tax paradise. Like billions and billions of pounds and dollars are all going through Amsterdam, and and most people don't even know it. Rutger, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. So what did you think of the overall debate? I know I always go on about this, but I've spent a lot of time in Sweden and the type of tax rates that they we're talking about. They have a 70% about, tax rate. Yeah, they do. Sweden. And actually, we're not talking about people who earn millions. I think, you know, if you earn probably knocking on for 100 grand, you're paying that kind of tax in Sweden. And it's a society where that is the consensus and people understand that they're getting things like great childcare from the state and some of the other things we've talked about on previous podcasts. So I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of this. Uh, although, you know, I know it's a difficult thing to sell to people without sounding like it's politics of envy. And also, some, somebody said a great phrase to me uh, last week. I don't know where the quote comes from, so excuse me. But it it's the idea that often people won't vote for these type of tax rates, which will never affect them because they don't see themselves as being poor, but they see themselves as being pre-rich and they don't want to be paying that type of tax rate when they get there. Yeah, and I think what was interesting to me is, you know, when you listen to Nick Hannah, I mean, he he doesn't sound like a conventional member of the 0.01% club, no. does he? 
I mean, obviously, for a country like the UK, there are questions to be asked about. We're a smaller country. At what point does it people end up just sort of moving their income out? Although that's always the argument that's used. And so I'm, I'm not saying it's a show-stopping argument. I think the other thing that it really reminds me of is that an event I did about uh, 18 months ago at the LSE with, with David Willits. And David Willits, Lord Willits, he used to work for Baroness Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher. She cut the top rate famously from 60% to 40% in 1988. He said she would have been appalled by the amounts people were paying themselves. She thought that one of the reasons you cut the top rate was so people didn't have to pay themselves as much at the top. And And that sort of takes me to the interesting thing that sort of Nick was saying, which is, one of the arguments here is not just a conventional redistribution argument, but what incentives you give people about where they pay themselves. He's arguing for for raising the, the top rates because, as the experience of his father was, you then you've got an incentive to put your money in, you know, back into the business or 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 sort of elsewhere. So it's about so it's about changing the incentives in the system. I think the other thing that's striking me about this debate is look, this is really a debate about what kind of society do you want to be, and in a way, you know, one should have this debate not sort of hidebound by sort of myths or whatever. You just say, well, look, you know, how unequal do we want to be? What kind of society do we want to create? And that, and, and that's it's not about envy. It's about a, a debate for the society about who we want to be. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. 
and and yet you're going back to Leicester. You're yeah. going to be performing. At we the were we were runner up to in something, weren't we? Oh, in the podcast awards. <gasps> Which one was it? Oh, we got no. a bronze, didn't we? No, but we were runner up in some other podcast award. I think you were nominated for for best new voice, but yeah. you, you went to the awards and then you were very upset, weren't you? The winner gave a speech saying, "I was sure Ed Miliband was going to win." That. <laughs> And it, you were I like, like, yeah, I, me I, too. I was re- exactly. I was. I tried to be very magnanimous. It, it brought up a lot of issues for yeah. exactly yeah. from uh, yeah. his previous life. And then did you follow the winner home? I did. I, did. <laughs> I thought that would be slightly yeah. taking a bit far. Actually, beat them up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not. Hey. It's not really my. I think if I'd been gonna do that i might have done it with david cameron but i, just, <laughs> I didn't I, I decided not to do that out of the two of you who, who do you think would win a fight a, fiz, a fist fight oh definitely him oh, really no no I so. you I mean, forgot it in you no i, didn't I mean ed know. seems more like a lover than a fighter to me which no, it, it speaks well of him i think when push comes well that's nice of you, you to say i think this. A glass will go over you, really? The red mist. The red, yeah. red, red Ed's yeah. red mist. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe I'd sort of distract him by flourishing a pig's head at the appropriate, <laughs> at the appropriate moment. As a sort of kind of decoy. <laughs> let's do this. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Rosie, you brought along some ideas which could be potential uh-huh. reasons to be cheerful. What's yeah. what's the first one? So, first one, I think for 24 hours, everyone should be disabled. I don't mean everyone at the same time. Right. Because that would be chaos. Is it once a year or just once in your life? Once a year. Once so a year. it's like a birthday. <laughs> right. It's my disabled day. I'm doing this because, believe it or not, I'm disabled. And I just think in the world a lot of people will be more understanding if they could live like me for a day. So give me an example of something you don't think people realise. Yeah, what, what, what would we like? Um, what are we blind to? Oh, blind. Right, Good that language, one. right. Yeah, so patronising every day. Are you okay? Do you know where you're going? Right. Where's your mum? Uh, I think she's at home in Yorkshire. Do people um, seriously say, yeah, where's your mum? Yeah, yeah. I have a lobster now. I'm 28 years <laughs> old. Uh, but that's a serious part. But I'm saying all of this for a bigger reason. What's the bigger a reason? The reason is that being disabled is amazing 
and I want to give that gift wow. to everyone. So, so what are the reasons it's amazing then? Queue jumping. <laughs> you never have to queue in your life. You're like, no, I'm not waiting there. I'm disabled. <laughs> Jeff, you would love that. Yeah, I would love to not have to. Queue. I mean, I'm a, pre- I'm a pretty good queuer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I quite like to jump the queue. I think. I think you're right. Speedy yeah. boarding. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Oh my God! Get yourself a wheelchair <laughs> and get yourself into an airport. You will have the time of your life. I'm, I'm, Rosie, I'm worried he's now going to do that. You're converted now, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. definitely. Done. Okay, we'll Done. have that. That's idea number one. What's, uh, what's your second idea? Segways for everyone. Yes. Everyone knows what a Segway is, but these days, yes. I think. But sort of, it's a platform with two wheels and then a pole yeah. and handlebars. Yeah. You stand Have on you it. ever tried one? I haven't. It didn't go well for me. I, no. I no. haven't, but then I'm not very physically sort of adept at balancing. Right. Yeah. Ed, but Rosie... I'm telling you, I saw one and I said to the man, no, that is not going to happen. I was incredible at it. It's your great gift in life and you yeah, haven't realised. You know, Rosie, I hate to break some news to you, but my understanding of this is that the founder of the Segway fell off a cliff and died <laughs> on a Segway. Yeah, but don't go near cliffs. <laughs> <laughs> Just avoid the seaside. Forever. No segue at the seaside. I just think a segue brings everyone joy. To be fair, he wasn't the founder. He was the guy, I've just looked it up, he bought the company and died after writing the Oh, that's fine (laughs) (laughs) As long as the inventor is alive, we're okay. But, you know, I have something else which is related to this, which is the electric scooter. Because I spent some time in Paris last year and they have electric scooters all over Paris. Some people see it as a bit of a menace. Uh, They've had to have new regulations. kids have on the pavements, but but electric. Yeah, Honestly, it's going to become a thing here. I'm sure it's going to become a thing here. It's so exciting, though, because they're electric, so we don't have any emissions. People can zoom to work happy. Did you fall off? I did fall off, yeah. You actually fell off. How? Even I could (laughs) do it. And I can't walk properly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. And what's the what's the final idea, Rosie? So we're in February right now, and it is freezing, and I find it so hard to leave my warm, cosy house. I'm cold all the time. Mm. I'm in 18 layers and it's never enough. So, easy solution. Pop a roof 
On the contrary. That is good. They did it for Wimbledon. Yeah, George had really big Wimbledon roof so that we can go outside and be warm and be happy and then the sky could always be shining so everyone's happy. Wouldn't it just be dark all the time? See, that's the (laughs) thing. So I recently visited a very fancy hotel with no light switches. You got an iPad and you could control all the light and the mood on your iPad. If you wanted a purple room... You could. So, you just have one iPad controlling, and then I think we could connect it to a rewards game. So, a bit like a country employee of the day. And they were the best person of that day is then ready. They are Lord of the Sky. Wow. <laughs> so they get the iPad and they can control when it's daylight. Do you fancy that? I think in the Jeffocracy, I should be the Lord of the Sky. <laughs> I thought you were going to say yeah. that, actually. Yeah. I felt you were going to say you would control yeah. the mood all the time. And you would quite like a roof on the country because you you, you, you don't enjoy... Um, the cold. No. no. You're not, you're a bit it's nesh. lovely. And we will protect... The normal guy. Yeah. <laughs> Rosie, if people want to come and see you, what are, what are you up to at the minute? So I am gigging lots. I got a few dates in Soho Theatre and I'm currently writing my second hour for Edinburgh. It's relentless, isn't it? You go, you have this first one, it's successful, then you've got to write another one. And they're like, great, we like that more (laughs) now. So, yeah, look at me online, I'm Josie Rones. Josie Rones? Who got Rosie Jones then? Oh, Oh, she's a glamour model. Oh. Did you know that? I didn't that? know that, no. Yeah, so if you ever Google Rosie Jones, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Rosie, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Time for us to go now. It is, and it's exciting as well because we are going on our little pre-Valentine's lads mini break to Iceland. Yeah. Why do you not like me describing it in that way? I don't know. I just didn't know what was coming. Lads on tour. I felt it was sort of lumbering over the hill, <laughs> lumbering over the fjord. No, I'm uh, very much looking forward to it. We've had lots of suggestions from Reasons to Be yeah, Cheerful listeners on yeah. what we should do. Uh, my mother-in-law suggested we go to a penis museum. 
Yep, sounds like your mother-in-law. Yeah, uh, uh, lots of suggestions that you and I should take a dip in the Blue Lagoon yeah. and smother each other in volcanic mud. You don't fancy that? Oh. Yeah, there we go. You're intrigued, don't High you? High voice. Yeah. Um, we should thank our guests. Yes, we, we should. Hastily. Yeah. Uh, so I'd like to thank Nick Hannah and Rutger Bregman. And uh, thanks to Rosie Jones for all her ideas. Emma Corsham produced our podcast. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the eye dance and Ed Seed composed the music. However, the artwork uh, was by Emily, Emily Power. Power. And uh, and that's it. The next time we speak to you, we will be uh, we'll be in Iceland. So he's heading for the yacht. He's heading for the Segway. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Mm-hmm.